Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a special program, WJR Spotlight on the Middle East. I'm Marie Osborne. I'll be your host with you this hour. The eyes of the world continue to be focused on the Middle East. On October 7th, the militant group Hamas launched a shocking attack against Israel, killing hundreds of civilians and taking more than 200 people hostage, among them children and U.S. citizens. The action has led to thousands of deaths and retaliation by Israeli forces in the Gaza Strip. Thousands of Metro Detroiters have direct ties to both Israel and Gaza. There's deep concern that this conflict could result in much wider violence in that area. In the next hour, we'll speak to several local experts who will share their insights onto what is unfolding in the Middle East and the implications for all of us. Stay with us as our WJR Spotlight on the Mideast continues. Welcome to the WJR Spotlight on the Middle East. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict dates back to the early 20th century. The tension began after the creation of the State of Israel in 1948 following the Holocaust. And since that time, Israelis and Palestinians have been at odds about how to partition the land into two states. Over the years, there have been various peace negotiations brokered by the U.S. as well as others, but none of them were ever accepted. Former Michigan Congressman Mike Rogers was the chair of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, a former FBI agent and currently running for U.S. Senate here in Michigan. Can you just give us a brief history of that area and why we find ourselves where we are today? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, uh, Marie, and thanks for having me on. You know, it's, a, it's obviously uh, on a good day is a dangerous neighborhood, the Mideast. Uh, and it is complicated. The politics are complicated. Religion plays a major factor in a lot of the disagreements there between Sunnis and Shias and uh, Israelis or Jews. Um, and so it is. it gets complicated in a hurry. And what we've seen, and this year was about, I think, the 40th anniversary of the Beirut uh, barracks bombing that killed United States Marines, and the target was believed to be... Uh, uh, from Iran. So we believe that was an Iranian effort uh, to try to uh, get the United States out. And we ended up pulling out, uh, if you recall, at that time. And so we've had this ongoing conflict with Iran for a very long time, which is why all of the efforts on stopping them from getting a nuclear weapon have been underway by Republicans and Democrats, uh, you know, for the last 40 years. Uh, and uh, their increased, Iran's increased uh, belligerence uh, really started ramping up it, during the Iraq conflict, where they were, they believe, the uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence services believe, were responsible for hundreds, if not thousands, of injured U.S. soldiers uh, and soldiers killed in action uh, because of the technology that Iran was trying to introduce to the battlefield. Um, in, in uh, pretty sophisticated roadside bombs and other things. They also, Iran, have been supporting the Houthis, which is kind of a breakaway group in Yemen. Why that's important is because they were using this group, the Iranians, to attack the Saudis uh, and, and cause problems in, in Yemen and in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they were also using Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization based in south of Lebanon, to target uh, Israel. Uh, they're also using Hamas. Now, Hamas is Sunni, 
Uh, Hezbollah tends to be more Shia, which is Iran is Shia, uh, but they don't care as long as you know with that old saying, your enemy of, of my enemy makes you my friend. Mm -hmm. What I see is so many players that are now have their finger in the pot, if you will, that are, you know, have a stake in all of this. The fear is that this could really break out to be a much larger crisis than what we're even seeing right now. Oh, completely. And, and certainly the, the U.S. strikes into Syria and hitting munitions dumps yeah. was always, um, you know, that's the, the, and that's in direct relation to those munition dumps going into to Israel, by the way. Uh, those happened in Syria. And Syria is an interesting place for this. And this is why they, people say, hey, this thing could spread out. Russia has interests in Syria. Uh, there's a port that they have signed a lease for with As uh, Assad uh, that they want to they want to be able to have uh, that warm water port. So they still have it there. So they've been playing, supporting, giving intelligence to uh, the regime there. Uh, it's obviously not friendly to the United States. China has now come in and said that they're not going to condemn Iran and certainly not condemning Hamas. Oh, and by the way. Uh, they have been trying to get Iran on what they're calling the petrodollar, meaning that they would do trades in petroleum, not based on the U.S. dollar, but based on either the yuan or this new currency that China is trying to drive to the world, which is a basket of currency between the other nations. Oh, by the way, none of which like us in the United States. Oh, and by the way, all of the players who don't like us all have a hand in what's happening in the Middle, Middle East today. One of the things that we've heard Israel say, uh, specifically uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been saying, that they want to destroy Hamas. They absolutely want Hamas destroyed. But when we've seen that happen before in history, it hasn't turned out quite uh, as expected. You end up with a power vacuum. Is it even possible to destroy Hamas? And if, if it is done... Who would be next in line to take uh, to take their place? Yeah, so there's been some interesting um, bits of information coming out of, of Gaza and the West Bank. You know, the, in Gaza, Hamas went in, went uh, became in charge. Oh, I want to say it's around 2006, and so and they really haven't. It's not much of a democracy going forward from that. Uh, and Hamas, remember, is recognized as a terrorist organization. So I do believe that there are lots of Palestinians who are tired of the constant war machine uh, that Hamas continues to spend its money on. And and they teach their children, by the way, in schools that their job as young young males is to, to, to participate in killing Jews. I mean, it's I wish it, it weren't it were a nicer way to say that, but there isn't. And so all of that has become a problem uh, in Palestine. It helps radicalize. It helps uh, keep people down. And there just isn't a lot of economic opportunity. So I think when they say destroy Hamas, I don't think they mean every single one of them is going to go. I know you talk about a power vacuum. I do believe that there are other leadership in Palestine that would step up to the plate here. Uh, you know, there's going to be lots of hurt feelings for a very long time, given that people are losing loved ones and it's there's no good outcome in that. But what can happen, I think, is you build a state uh, that says they're more committed to that two-state solution 
you know, more economic opportunity for, for Gaza, but you, you can't do it as long as you have a terrorist organization in charge. We are looking at such a humanitarian disaster. You know, the loss of life, the revulsion expo- expressed by the world over the Hamas massacre in Israel, um, even people who had some sympathy for the plight of people of Gaza, you know, they can't really, they can't be supportive of what happened here, but now we're looking at this much wider humanitarian disaster. Is there, is there a way to do this without have it lay on the backs of civilians? Well, you know, I have to tell you, I think Israel has been quite restrained. I mean, you think about what happened to them. I mean, literally, I mean, we don't need to go through the the sheer brutality mm-hmm. of you know the killing, the killing of innocent men, women, and children, kidnapping senior women out of their beds at night and dragging them across the border. Uh, and so, I mean, the, the, the brutality of this was, was something. Having Israel say, everybody move to the south, we have to go into Gaza City, you know, things like that. They're obviously in, in the court of public opinion, uh, you know, the, the, the pro-Palestinian uh, groups are going to have a say in that for sure. However, I, you know, Here's the part of the problem. Hamas uses human shields. They use children. They launched missiles, and they've done this for 20 years. This isn't a new tactic. They'll launch missiles from schools. They'll, uh, you know, they use uh, uh, hospitals for, for uh, human shield operations, and they put their headquarters near them so people won't get, uh, they won't attack there. And so they, use, they do everything they can to expose civilians to casualties uh, because, again, they're terrorists, and they think in a very different way. They look at that as, uh, uh, you know, cost of uh, the cost of getting to where they want to go politically, and so that is a really tough enemy to fight uh, when you when you have to do that. So I, it seems to me that Israel is giving opportunities for people to leave, and you know, nobody wants this humanitarian plight of these civilians. But they have to do something that is, uh, again, remember, they're reacting to the largest terrorist attack, uh, in, certainly in their history, uh, with a huge loss of, of Israeli life. And so they're trying to do it in a way that this doesn't happen again. And I don't know if I have time for this, but I, really quickly, what's interesting about this is that we are getting into a disinformation propaganda-type battle where Hamas, through Iran is using social media and other things to try to create their narrative uh, to say that Israel is just innocently slaughtering these civilians. Um, And this is exactly what they did, Iran, through Hamas, leading up to this attack by giving the impression uh, that they weren't, they, Hamas, were not interested in conflict with Israel anymore. And it was, I I hate to say, I mean, it was an exceptionally well-done disinformation campaign sponsored by Iran. And what ended up happening a week before the terrorist attack, uh, uh, Marie, that that Israel briefed, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, were briefing that they had effectively deterred Hamas because that was all of the messaging, including social media that was running across Israel. And here in the United States, they're talking to folks on college campuses saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Israel is the bad guy here. Uh, and it's hugely effective. So if they could fool some of the best intelligence services in the world uh, that they were not no longer interested in committing acts of atrocity, 
Imagine what they can do if you don't really have a firm grasp of all of the history of Hamas and terrorism in the region. That's what I worry about in this in this fight more than anything. There is a disinformation, and uh, or the, in the intelligence service they would call it an information operation, actively happening in the United States as well, and it's happening in Europe and all around the world. And so you have to be careful about where your information is coming from. But the, you know, what is that old saying that by Churchill? A lie goes around the world twice before the truth can get its boots on in the morning. <laughs> well, so that's good. exactly what they're, and that's what they're doing, and they're trying to make sure that Israel looks like the bad guy, no matter what they're doing. Our thanks this evening to Mike Rogers. WJR Spotlight on the Middle East continues after the break. The WJR Spotlight on the Middle East continues. Hamas formed in 1987. It rejects any peace deal with Israel, which it refuses to recognize. It is considered a terrorist organization by Israel and the U.S. and a number of Western countries. Gaza, surrounded by blockades imposed by Israel and Egypt, which restrict movement. Gaza is roughly the size of Las Vegas. It has over uh, just over 2 million residents, making it one of the most densely populated places on earth. Nearly half of Gaza's population is under the age of 18. Osama Siblani is the editor of the Arab American News here in the metro area, the largest and most widely circulated Arab American publication in the United States. Osama, I think uh, there has been so much said in the last couple of weeks about this conflict in the Middle East and what's happened. I want to hear from you and from your perspective, from the Arab perspective, the Palestinian perspective, what you see unfolding here in this crisis. Um, I I, I was not surprised about what happened on October 7, even though uh, what happened is very significant. Um, because it happened in 2021, it happened in, in 2015, 2014, 2012, 2008. This has been happening since 1948, uh, since the creation of the state of Israel uh, on a Palestinian land. So this issue of the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict has been brewing since 1948. And the reason that we're seeing more and more violence and frequently happening throughout the last decades, because we do not have a solution to the occupation issue. Occupation cannot continue. It defies history. And leadership does not exist in, 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 in the greatest country in the, in the world, in our country, the United States of America, in order to make sure that they broker a peace where they can save Israel and create a Palestinian state side by side to live in peace. That happened 30 years ago when, when uh, President Clinton hosted Prime Minister uh, Rabin, Israeli Prime Minister Haq Rabin, and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat in, in the White House. And they signed the Oslo Accord. That was September 13, 1993. But they did not do anything about it. But, Osama, let me, let me say this. How did the actions on October 7th possibly further the cause of peace when, I, I mean, you have to say that this was an all-out uh, massacre of civilians within the confines of their country, what they have known as their country. What happened on October 7 brought the Palestinian-Israeli dispute 
let's say, the least or, or the issue of the Palestinians to the forefront. It was pushed back to the all the way to the back, and nobody was talking about it. Palestinians have been living in, in millions of them, have been living as refugees around the world, especially in the, in the Arab world, and inside their own land. Uh, settlements have been expanding and taking their land, and nobody was doing anything serious in order to address this issue. Now the entire world is talking about it. So it, actually it brought in the, the issue back to the discussions. Something has to be done about this. Now, I know no one condones killing innocent life, whether they were Israelis or Palestinians. But when we talk about October 7th, this is not, this is, did not start on October 7th. It started in 1948. And the people in Gaza, they have been living in an open air prison, 2.3 million under siege. They cannot get water, electricity, fuel, medicine, and, uh, unless the Israelis agree to it. That is, that is occupation. And what's happening inside Israel, the Palestinians are being treated as second-class citizens. That's an apartheid. Hamas has been uh, named a terrorist organization pretty widely around the globe. How can they possibly, at this point, try to broker any kind of peace with the Israeli government uh, after what has happened, what has happened well, here. What, what do you think has to happen? What do you think the United States can do to calm tensions and move some sort of meaningful peace forward? Well, we had, we had chances to do it, like I said, in 1993 when President Bill Clinton was in the White House. I was there. Uh, the, uh, the, also a court between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But because we did not follow up, because we did not implement the Oslo Accord, Hamas emerged and the PLO vanished. Why? Because there was nothing tangible on the, on the ground. The Palestinians continued to be oppressed, occupied, and under siege. And therefore, right now, you always make peace with your enemies, not with your friends. So if the Israelis want to negotiate, they have to negotiate with their enemies. There is a conflict there. The United States needs to be an honest broker. We cannot go to Israel, as the President Biden did, and say, go ahead and do whatever you want to do. We're going to give you the money and the weapons to kill more Palestinians and continue the occupation. Yes, everyone has a right to defend themselves. But we have to be an honest broker in here. The United States are, is the only country that can make or break peace in the Middle East. But also, let me say, and we've talked to so many experts in this field, they say Hamas is being funded by Iran, and that that, so what? that, cannot, that cannot stand. Is but Israel, Israel is funded by the United States, so, so why, why do they have to have any, any kind of reasons to reject the fact that the Palestinians are funded by the, uh, by the Iranians? I, I want you to talk for a moment, please, about the people of Palestine, because um, a lot of people have talked about how Hamas is a terrorist organization. They are in control. But this is not what the Palestinian people necessarily want. Can you just tell me the life of the Palestinians, what it is that they want to have? The Palestinians have salty, salty tears like us, like everybody else. And they have 
red blood in their veins. They are human beings that they wanted to live in dignity and peace. And they want to make sure that they are not subjected to a, a government that, that brutalized them. And that's what's been happening since 1948. The settlers, the Jewish settlers, they are going and taking their homes and, and, and throwing them out. There is no government there to protect them. There is no place for them to go except in camps. Those camps, refugee camps around, I have been to one of them. You cannot sit for one hour in a refugee camp where the Palestinians have been there for 75 years. I'm talking about the grandfathers, fathers, kids, and their kids and grandkids have lived in refugee camps. They cannot take it anymore. So when you say that Hamas is a terrorist organization, I have to tell you it is not. This is not the way the Palestinians see it. This is they, they are it's like the African National Congress that was fighting apartheid in South Africa. Everyone was saying it's a terrorist organization, but later on they recognized that they were fighting for their dignity and their equality and to remove apartheid and everyone recognized them later on and Nathan Mandela has become a national hero everywhere around the around the world. So the, the, the notion of when our enemy or the people that we do not agree with, we, we, we start to name them as terrorists or extremists, then we are going to lose the conversation in here with them. And how are we going to make peace? With whom? Our thanks this evening to Osama Siblani. The WJR Spotlight on the Middle East continues in a moment. The WJR Spotlight on the Mideast continues this afternoon. I'm Marie Osborne, your host. U.S. Secretary Antony Blinken brought his diplomatic push on the Israel-Hamas war to the occupied West Bank today. Some experts believe this visit is really laying the groundwork for a post-conflict scenario in the Mideast. Javed Ali is the associate professor at the University of Michigan, Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. Professor Ali, we've heard uh, the sentiment expressed from several different players in this conflict, the idea of destroying Hamas. But is that even possible? Well, this is a really interesting question. The whole notion of the word destroy applied to a terrorist group what does that look like from rhetoric to reality? That's a very difficult thing to answer. The United States has also, over the past 20 years, talked about destroying terrorist groups, first al-Qaeda and then ISIS. And I was in the middle of, of a lot of uh, that from both a policy and strategy and analysis and operations perspective. And it's very it's been proven to be very difficult to destroy groups like that. But if the Israeli objective now is to destroy Hamas, does that mean kill or capture every single person in the, the organization, which has tens of thousands of people? Does it mean just getting rid of the leadership and the infrastructure of uh, terrorism that enables Hamas to conduct the attacks like they did uh, on October 7th, which were so horrific, but then the, the much longer pattern of Hamas attacks against Israel stretching back to the 1980s? Uh, does it mean ending Hamas's support with Iran, because that is one thing that has allowed Hamas to exist at the level they have for all these decades. You've written that Israeli invasion of Gaza likely will resemble past difficult battles in Iraq and in Syria. And history has shown that um, really the big losers in any ground action uh, are civilians. So why 
why even take that step? Is there not another way to achieve the ends here without doing that? This is another excellent, excellent question, uh, Marie. And based on the impact of what happened in Israel on October 7th and in our country on September 11, 2001, going in on the ground in places like Iraq and Afghanistan uh, for at least the United States and now Israel and the Gaza Strip, this is really the only way to try to to achieve some of those objectives we just talked about, whether it's destroy, disrupt, degrade a terrorist organization, because you can only do so much from the air. Um, and as we've seen already, airstrikes can cause a significant amount of civilian casualties as well, even with the most precise munitions and weapons and the most discriminate form of targeting. Unfortunately, you know, civilian casualties will still we know there have been airstrikes by the U.S. in Syria. We're learning about that. You know, a lot of people are speculating, will this all lead to wider action in the Middle East? Will it bring in other actors into this dispute? Well, unfortunately, the potential for escalation is very high. And we've already seen uh, that uh, Hezbollah, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah uh, in the north, his engaged in a, a small-scale series of rocket and artillery attacks against Israel, probably trying to provoke Israel or remind them that Hezbollah maintains a capability to threaten them on the northern border. Uh, we have seen over the past couple of weeks now Iranian-backed proxies in Iraq, Syria, Yemen launch uh, missiles or drones at U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria, or they've some apparently from Yemen were intended to, to go to Israel. Uh, and now what we've seen overnight is the Biden administration saying that the U.S. has retaliated in a very precise and focused way against Iranian-controlled facilities in Syria. That, that tit-for-tat cycle of, of uh, activity between Iran and the United States have been, has been happening for a few years now. So that isn't new in and of itself, but against the context of this larger uh, battle that may be unfolding between Israel and Hamas, yes, this then has the potential to become a multi-front conflict with Israel trying to, to do several things at once in Israel or on its borders, and the U.S. trying to do other things, not in Israel or against Hamas, but against Iran or the Iranian proxies in the region. So, yes, the potential is very high, and we're already seeing signs that, you know, the violence is, is occurring. It's just restrained, uh, but it, it could escalate far, far beyond what it is right now. Professor John Churchiari is a professor of public policy, also at the Ford School at the University of Michigan. Professor Churchiari, it seems that this conflict is on a razor's edge, as we just heard from your colleague. The idea of this wider war looming large. Is there any player in this conflict or in the region who's really interested in holding the peace? A wider war absolutely could be disastrous and likely would be for a large number of populations across the Middle East and perhaps even further afield. Fortunately, most of the governments in the Middle East and most of the key states outside of the region that hold influence there have a profound disinterest in seeing this conflict uh, spread uh, out of control. And so there are, despite the 
uh, rhetoric from places like Ankara and Riyadh and Cairo, the leaders of those countries stand to lose immensely from a wider war and therefore share the U.S. interest as well as the Israeli interest uh, and the interest of many others to prevent this from spiraling uh, into a wider regional war. But what could possibly, what could keep it from uh, spiraling out of control? One important reason why the war hasn't uh, escalated more than it has already uh, is that the Israeli government is still trying to figure out what's possible in Gaza. Uh, and for that reason, uh, has been slower to take certain steps and, and to escalate on its side than was originally anticipated. Secondly, also very important, the U.S. government has been uh, keen to emphasize restraint even as it defends Israel's right and obligation to defend itself after the Hamas attacks of October 7th. Uh, and we can be assured that many governments in the region have been reaching out to Tehran to discourage Iran from escalating on its side of the conflict through Hezbollah or other regional proxies. Do you think that there's a lot of diplomatic action occurring? I'm certain there is a great deal of diplomatic activity that is not reaching the front page of the papers. That's the way things have been done for a long time in the Middle East. And one reason for that is that Middle Eastern politics have long been characterized by strange uh, bedfellows uh, that Israel has, for example, drawn somewhat closer to some of the Arab Gulf states that it was previously estranged from. There were even talks of Israel and Saudi Arabia considering possible normalization. Turkey has gotten closer to Iran and Qatar. Uh, and at various times, each of the countries that I just mentioned have found it in their interest to uh, to negotiate and even to uh, make arrangements with uh, other states that they wouldn't want to be seen holding hands with in public. And in a way, that gives us the best hope for this situation. Ultimately, what do you think um, a solution to the problem here is? What do you think has to happen in order for a solid peace to take place in this region? There needs to be a relatively clear, relatively widely agreed plan for what comes next in Gaza and more generally for the Palestinian people. Uh, it is certainly the case that Israel has a, a right to defend itself against Hamas attacks. It is also imperative, both from a, a moral standpoint and from a strategic one, uh, for Israel's response to be highly, highly considerate of the laws of war and the humanitarian uh, suffering taking place in Gaza. A lot of people have talked, of course, about this two-state solution, and a lot of things that I've heard coming out of Israel now are, oh, that's impossible now, that'll never happen. There's no question that this sets uh, peace talks between Israelis and Palestinians back uh, greatly, uh, but I don't think that we can encourage the mindset that this is a problem that can never be resolved or that this is a situation that is inexorably headed for the worse. Uh, somewhere in this process, and it needs to happen relatively soon, uh, there needs to be serious effort put in by all parties, including the Israelis, the U.S. government, the Palestinians, regional partners, into 
thinking about what a workable future looks like. The WJR Spotlight on the Middle East continues in a moment. And welcome back to the WJR Spotlight on the Middle East. Dr. Galit Benzur was an intern here at WJR more than 20 years ago. Currently, she is a professor of communications at several universities in Israel. On the morning of October 7th, she says she was awakened to the news of the attack on Israel. And since that day, air raid sirens and visits to the local bomb shelter have become a big part of her life. I, I'm personally okay under the circumstances. It, 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 I think Israel uh, woke up to a different world uh, since October 7th, what we call the Black Saturday. Um, we have soldiers dying and they get wounded and we have rockets and missiles falling. So, you know, we are very alert, you know, hearing the siren, okay, and when the siren will be on. Uh, we have hostages and the babies and the children and the elderly and the mothers and the fathers and soldiers, and they're all still held by the Hamas. And the media broadcast 24-7 the sad stories of those who were murdered and those who died. And, and you know, it's, it's very... Um, the morale is low, but we know that at the end we will win because it can't be. I mean, the good needs to conquer the evil. Um, as if I'm talking about my personal life, uh, I teach in several universities, and as of now, the academic year is postponed to December 3rd uh, because 30% of the students and faculty members are recruited. Um, it is very difficult for me to concentrate. So I do some volunteer work. Um, my daughter finally went to school for the first time after a month uh, because all the studies are conducted via Zoom. But still, it's going to be it's one day, it's four hours, and it is crazy because the kids are mostly locked at home, and they spend the whole day in front of the screen. My daughter, she's afraid even to go out just for, you know, to get some fresh air. She's afraid because one time she, um, the siren caught her in the street and she ran and she was scared. So since then she, prefer, she prefers to stay at home. Galit, you, you spent a lot of time with us here in the United States and at WJR. We're so proud of that. I know you keep up with what's happening here in our country, and I know that you've seen a lot of these demonstrations on college campuses, uh, both pro-Israel uh, pro and pro-Palestinian. What are some of your thoughts about that when you see that? You know, I, when I look at it, I think to myself that it actually makes me a bit angry because it seems to me that people forget what happened in Israel and why we are in a state of a war now? I mean, it, it seems that people forgot that the Hamas butchered, slaughtered people back then on, on, uh, 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 on October 7th. And it seems to be that the public opinion goes to the, uh, uh, goes to the people in Gaza. And people need to understand that we don't have a problem with the Palestinian people. We have a problem.
problem with the Hamas that controls them. We have a problem with this terror organization that controls them because the Palestinian people need to understand that this is their first enemy. We are not their enemy. And when I see this demonstration and when I hear about all these anti-Semitic incidents and the protests against Israel, it makes me sad because when I was there and I did my, uh, uh, my master, I, I'm sorry, I did my master right in Michigan, and then I came back to do my uh, PhD, and I, I met pro-Palestinian and pro-Israelis. And when I, I spoke to some of the pro-Palestinians, they don't even know what is the history of, of this country. And they are so against Israel. It's like you see this hatred without even understanding what is going on. What is the sentiment among uh, people like yourself? Do you foresee that this is going to become a wider conflict, or is there any hope at all for peace? You know, at this point, we can see it's a wider conflict. But once, I think once we're going to destroy the Hamas, okay, people will maybe understand that the problem that we have is with the Hamas, not the Palestinian people. And the, Pal the Palestinian people should vote for another, for, for another parliament, for another political party that will bring them some future. And I really hope that once we destroy the Hamas, that will be some kind of an opportunity to talk about peace. We hope tonight's program has brought you some insight from different voices on this conflict. Thank you for joining us this evening for the WJR Spotlight on the Middle East. I'm Marie Osborne. Have a good evening.